Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. In early 1945, Lieutenant Hiro Onada of the Japanese Imperial Army was on the Philippine island of Lubang, which is just to the south southwest of Manila. He was there with several soldiers. And for those of you who don't know World War II history, of course, Japan and the United States were in conflict in the Pacific. Uh, the United States held the Philippines until Japan pushed the United States out early in the war. Later in the war, the United States went back to the Philippines to take those islands back. And it's at this point that Lieutenant Hiro Onada is on the island of Lubang. And he ordered three other soldiers to join him in guerrilla attacks on Allied forces because they could not stand up to the United States Army or the United States Marines uh, in direct combat. The only way they were going to be able to disrupt the United States was through guerrilla tactics because uh, Japan uh, was basically... The war was not going well for Japan at this point. Let me just put it that way. And uh, they didn't have enough forces to go face-to-face with the United States. So they're involved in guerrilla attacks, he and three other soldiers. He got separated from his command, yet he continued to carry out attacks on farmers and police long, long after the war is over. In fact, as you know, the war ended September 2nd, 1945, when Japan surrendered to the United States. But Onada and his allies, his three other men, continued to carry out guerrilla attacks in the Philippines long after the war was over. Well, Allied forces and the Filipino government got together. They dropped leaflets on the island of Lubang. They dropped newspapers on the island, newspapers from Japan uh, that said the war was over, and even letters and pictures from the families of these men that the war was over. And Lieutenant Onada deemed it all as propaganda. Because you see, these newspapers talked about life in Japan. But to Lieutenant Hiro Onada, that really proved that the war must still be going on. Because if Japan had really lost the world war, there should not be any life in Japan. Everyone should be dead. 100 million souls dying for honor was on everyone's lips, Onada said long after the war. He said if one Japanese person was alive, Japan would not have surrendered. So he considered the newspaper's propaganda altered by the United States. He considered even the letters that were dropped from his family on the island propaganda. The United States had pressured them into saying this. The war could not have been over. Everyone would be dead in Japan if the war was over. 
if one Japanese was alive, Japan wouldn't have surrendered, according to him. In fact, in that culture, surrender was not an option. Onada's mother, before the war, gave him a dagger. And she said to him, if you're ever taken prisoner, kill yourself with this. Can you imagine your mother giving you a dagger before you go to war? And she says, look, if you're ever about to be caught, just kill yourself with this dagger. Well, Lieutenant Hiro Onada kept his guerrilla warfare up for 29 years. Did you hear that? 29 years. He continued to attack people for 29 years after the war. Somehow he stayed alive. His other three comrades eventually gave themselves up. One died, I believe. By 1974, it was just him. In fact, in 1974, a Japanese traveler traveled to the Philippine jungle of Lubang and found Lieutenant Onada. Onada told the traveler that he would only stop defending his country and lay down his arms if his commanding officer, the same commanding officer who put him in duty, relieved him of his duty. So the Japanese government found Lieutenant Onada's commanding officer, who at the time was a bookseller, They found him. They flew him to Lubang Island to relieve Lieutenant Onada of his duty. And even at that point, Onada thought it might have been a trick. I mean, he he had his weapons ready to go in case this was actually a trick. But on March 9th, 1974, the 52-year-old Lieutenant Onada emerged out of the Philippine jungle with 500 rounds of ammunition still wearing his uniform, though the uniform was a bit tattered, his service rifle and his ceremonial sword were still in excellent condition. And he came out and a little bit later handed them to President Ferdinand Marcos, the Philippine president. This is in 1974. The war ended in 1945. For 29 years, he continued to carry out his duty and he continued all he he continued to think that all reports of the war ending had been false because he had not received official word that he was relieved of his duty and the war was over what dedication i mean what loyalty lieutenant hero inada would only stop obeying his commanding officer and defending his kingdom when relieved of his duty by his commanding officer. Now question, ladies and gentlemen, who is your commanding officer? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? Is it Jesus or is it the culture? If you say it's Jesus, well, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yet I see people in churches today not only failing to keep his commands, none of us do perfectly, obviously, but I see people today denying they are commands at all, especially when it comes to sexual behavior. Question, do you really think that Jesus and his apostles were wrong about sex? Do you really think that the self-absorbed, indulgent, fickle culture 
that we're in now knows better? If you do, why have you brought, bought into the culture's propaganda? Has Jesus relieved you of your duties? Do you think Jesus no longer has a kingdom worth defending? I mean, Lieutenant Hiro Onada was a true hero to his cause. He was loyal to his commanding officer and the kingdom he took an oath to defend. He wouldn't dare disobey his commands. Yet his commanding officer didn't suffer and die for him. Yet if you're a Christian, your commanding officer loves you so much that he suffered and died for you, yet you failed to follow his commands? Really? You're tempted to betray Jesus because you think you know better? Because you think your view of sex is more loving than the God who created sex? How is it that a Japanese soldier has more loyalty and dedication to his commanding officer than you have to the God who suffered and died for you? How is that? Oh, 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 yeah, I I get it. I know it's tempting in the face of opposition to throw in the towel. I mean, how much easier would it be to just agree with your friends and the culture? Because if you don't agree with them in the name of inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, they will extend no tolerance to you, brand you as evil, and exclude you you for having a diverse view. Yeah, it's much easier to just to give in to all that. I get it. Well, I got a bunch of questions I want to ask you after the break. And if I sound preachy, I am. (laughs) I'm preaching right now because... I just don't think that we have enough loyalty to the God who suffered and died for us and wants what's best for me and for you in the culture. He knows what's best. We don't. We think we do, but we don't. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. We're back in just two minutes, so don't go anywhere. A lot more coming. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. I can guarantee you, you're not going to hear this on NPR. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek and the American Family Radio Network. And by the way, if you're listening to this on the cross-examined, the CE podcast, the one with the big CEE on it, that is no longer going to be updated after this program. Because after September 1st, we're moving everybody over to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. So go to iTunes or wherever you get a podcast and sign up for the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. It's the one with my picture on it. You'll see me there. And uh, sign up for that one because the CE1, CE1 will not be up, get updated after September 1st. It, it, it really helps us to have everybody listening to the same podcast because it moves us up the charts so more people will see it. So uh, please migrate over there. And thank you so much for putting positive reviews up there on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist uh, podcast. If you uh, have put one on the other one, if you wouldn't mind transferring it on over to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, that'll, again, help us move it up the uh, the rankings, which is in, important. Okay, we were talking about just a, before the break, uh, Lieutenant Hiro Onada. 
a legendary soldier in the Japanese army who literally fought for 29 years after the war was over in the jungle of Lubang Island in the Philippines because he thought all reports of the war being over were propaganda. They were false. He was not going to disobey or change his duties until his commanding officer, the one that put him on that duty, gave him those orders, said, all right, the war's over. Come home. And for 29 years, he kept that up. And I see, uh, unfortunately, a parallel to many in the church today who don't have enough loyalty uh, to to obey the commands of Jesus anymore uh, because they're putting they're, there's pressure put on by the culture. There's pressure put on by uh, even family members. Uh, they they just rather not stand for Jesus anymore. Because they think, well, maybe actually maybe Jesus was wrong or maybe um, maybe the apostles were wrong or maybe the culture's right. Really? Did your friends or the culture suffer and die for you? Are you or your friends the standard of all that is right, good and true? Do you really think people should be treated as mere sex objects to be discarded once you become bored with them? Because that's what happens too often in relationships that aren't secured by a marriage commitment. I mean, do you really think that there's no design to the human body? Do you think that that, that design does not really tell us what, what is good, right, and true? And that when you, when you go against that design, there's going to be problems? Do you really think there's no difference between men and women? Even if you think that there's merit in the in the LGBTQ transgender um, in in those political goals for some reason, do you realize that none of those things would exist unless there was a difference between men and women? I mean, transgenderism presupposes there are men and women. Otherwise, you couldn't transition from one gender to another. Homosexuality presupposes there are genders. If there weren't genders. There could be no such thing as homosexuality or heterosexuality. They presuppose that same-sex relationships are different from heterosexual relationships. If they didn't presuppose that, no one would be arguing for same-sex marriage or transgender surgery or any of these things. So these movements are inherently contradictory. In one sense, they say, well, gender's fluid. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing going on here. There's, there's no binary. And yet, in order for there to be transitions between genders, you have to assume there are genders. You have to assume the binary reality that we all know exists. Do you really think that there are no negative medical consequences to same-sex behavior or no negative medical se- uh, consequences to promiscuous opposite-sex behavior? Do you really think that there are no psychological or moral differences between the opposite sex and same-sex behavior? Do you really think sex is just physical and that in casual sex, no one gets hurt emotionally, psychologically, physically, or morally? Do you really think that Jesus and the apostles were just backward rubes who merely wanted to take away all your fun. If you think those things, then you've bought into the propaganda of the enemy, the enemy of your soul, the enemy of the souls you think you're helping by denying the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. I mean, Lieutenant Hiro Onada, he would not believe in propaganda until somebody said, you know, it's not really propaganda. The war has ended. Has somebody told you the war's over? I don't mean the war with people. I mean the war with the spiritual war, the war with Satan and demons. Do you ever think there's no such thing as spiritual warfare? Hmm. Do 
you really think you are the standard of what's right, true, and good? Do you really think the culture is? You know, the culture changes. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the kind of things that we think are good, whole, right, and true now aren't anymore. The culture changes. 20 years from now, the culture's going to be on to some other fad. By the way, the only way you can measure change is against a standard that doesn't change. If God's nature does not exist, we couldn't even measure differences between one behavior and another behavior. We couldn't say one is better than the other if there's no unmovable standard of good. No, the real truth is this. Sex is like fire. If you keep it in the one place in your house it's supposed to be, your fireplace, it's wonderful. It'll warm you. But if you get it anywhere else in your house, it will burn your house down. Maybe not immediately, but certainly over the long term. And everybody, in, everyone who's listening to my voice right now over 40 years old knows what I'm talking about. Maybe even younger. <laughs> because many of us have tried. I just, we're just going to treat sex casually and, and everything's going to be fine. No, it's not. You have sex with somebody, everything changes forever. Sex is not just physical. If sex is just physical, why is it that if somebody rapes you, it's worse than if somebody just physically assaults you? If sex is just physical, why is it if you're, you're the person that you love goes off and has a physical relationship with somebody else and they come back and they say, oh, no, it's just physical. There's, there's nothing else going on here. Why do you get all upset over that? Because you know it's not just physical. It's psychological. It's emotional. It's spiritual. It's moral. There's so much more to sex than just the physical. People get, get more... No, let me put it this way. There are more consequences, either good or bad, that come out of sex than virtually anything else that we do. We can't treat it trivially. We can't treat it as just a physical act. It's not just a physical act. And, and you know what I'm saying is true. Now, it can, to you, become just a physical act if you get so jaded that you treat it just like a physical act over and over again. But in reality, it's not. It either has tremendous upside or tremendous downside, dependent upon how you use it, just like fire. The truth is this. Jesus and the apostles expressed the most loving ethic in history. It's motivated by the kind of love that treats people as valuable in themselves because they are valuable in themselves. They're made in the image of God. Human beings are not means to an end. They are not means put on this earth to satisfy your sexual or personal desires. They are ends in themselves. The sexual ethic of Jesus and the apostles seeks what's best over the long term for the person. It's the kind of love where people are not treated as just mere objects to be discarded once used, but as life partners who can participate and experience in a union with one another and who can create new life just as God did. In fact, creating new life is one way we are imagers of God. We create new human life just like God created human life, of course, in a different way. But we're images of God. We're his ambassadors. God created the first life, and then we continue to create life. Obviously, we're the instrumental cause through which God creates life. God is the ultimate creator, but we're the instrumental cause. He uses us to create life when 
a man and a woman come together. We are to be like God by procreating. That can only be done by a man and a woman. And mothering and fathering can only be done by a man and a woman. Parents are not interchangeable. Now, that's not to say single parents can't bring up their kids well. They can. They just have a more difficult time. Because mothering and fathering are different. And yet, we think we know better than Jesus and the apostles. Now, I know some people are thinking, well, Jesus never talked about some of these issues. Maybe the apostles did, but Jesus, no, he, Jesus did. Okay. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And he mentions theft and sexual immorality and some other things. Now, when Jesus mentioned sexual immorality, what did that mean? That's a category of sins that contained a number of individual sins. Sexual immorality to Jesus and his followers meant sex outside of marriage. It meant adultery. It meant homosexuality. It meant bestiality. It meant rape. It means the, it mean it meant any kind of sexual behavior outside of the union of a man and a woman inside of marriage. That's what the category sexual immorality meant when Jesus said it. Yes, he didn't mention all of those sins individually by name. He didn't need to. When he mentioned theft, that was something that would make a person unclean. But he didn't have to mention every kind of theft. Like he didn't mention felony home invasion. But that that didn't mean that Jesus was for felony home invasion or Jesus never said anything about felony home invasion. He did say something about felony home invasion when he used the word theft because felony home invasion is just a species of theft. He doesn't have to mention every possible immoral behavior for him to have mentioned the category of immoral behavior. And so when he mentions theft, he's including all of all kinds of theft. Just like when he mentions sexual immorality, he's including all kinds of sexual immorality. Whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, bestiality, rape, whatever these things are, Jesus has mentioned them. But even if he didn't mention them, that doesn't mean A, he's for them, and B, Jesus, through the second person of the Trinity inspired the entire Bible because the Holy Spirit being also God, Jesus being God in his divine nature, they inspired along with the father, of course, the entire Bible. So when Paul writes about sexual immorality or Jude or any other writer writes about it, it might as well be Jesus saying it. There's no more authority to Jesus's words than there are to the apostles words, according to Christian theology. They're all equally inspired, equally authoritative. So, Jesus is looking out for us when he says that sexual immorality is something that makes us unclean. He doesn't want us to be unclean. He doesn't want us to experience the negative effects. When Paul says flee sexual immorality, it's for our own benefit, our own good. And when we come back from the break, we'll talk more about this and get into maybe some other questions that you have uh, emailed me at questions. Actually, the email address is hello at crossexamine.org. Hello at crossexamine.org. You're listening to Frank Turek, the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist radio program and podcast. We're back in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, 
don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. September 7th, next week right here near Charlotte, North Carolina. Actually in Monroe, North Carolina, just to the south. I'll be at Lee Park Church. It's a Saturday. We're doing a, a little apologetics conference, 9 to 3. My friend Trisha Scribner, she'll be there as well. And uh, it's at Lee Park Church in Monroe, North Carolina. Just go to our website, crossexamine.org. Click on events. You'll see it there. Also this coming week, we're starting... The I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, actually it's now called the Why Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist online course. And if you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. And if you sign up for the premium version, you'll be on uh, the Zoom video program with me several times live during the next couple of months. Uh, to interact with one another, to learn from one another. I'll try and answer any of your questions. That's what we do on these Zoom videos. And Zoom video is great. I mean, you can have uh, a whole bunch of people see one another on video live, and uh, that's the program we use to interact on the Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist online course. A bunch of other courses uh, coming up as well, but check our website, crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. You'll see them there. But you need to sign up for this one immediately because we're going to run out of room in the premium version. We want to keep the class small enough so everyone can ask questions on the Zoom uh, video uh, encounters that we have. Okay, we are talking about this issue of uh, why people seem to just Give up on what Jesus and the apostles said in the face of the culture, particularly when it comes to sexual immorality. People today just, um, they, they, I guess they want to buy into the new religion, the new religion of sex that we see here in America. If you notice that many of the things we fight over, certainly politically, have to do with sex, whether it's abortion, same-sex marriage, um, transgenderism, now that people uh, think that the government needs to pay for transgender surgery somehow, what bathrooms we're going to use. I mean, these are all issues related to sex. And I understand why. Look, if there is no God, people think, well, you know, that's really all we have here, just relationships and sex. And, you know, I get that. I understand why people think that way. Um, But there's a lot more to life. And certainly if Christianity is true, there's a lot more to life than just sex and and relationships. I mean, that's a big part of it, but that's not it. That's not why we're here, just to have sex and relationships. We're here to know God and to make him known. We're here to accept the free gift that Christ has provided us and to know God in doing that and to make him known to others so we can not only enjoy him here temporally, but also in eternity. Now, I know that much of this is motivated by you, you want other people to experience relationships. And that's a good impulse, by the way. You, you, know, you want people to have love in their life and to experience relationships. But if you really want to love your friends, ladies and gentlemen, you want to love your friends as Jesus commanded you to love their friends or to love your friends. You want to, you want to love them? You got to tell them the truth. Don't give them the false idea that the sins they are committing, that the sins you are committing aren't really sins. That Jesus and his apostles had it all wrong. 
that you're okay and I'm okay. No, we're not. I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're all born with an orientation to bad behavior. We all sin and we all need a savior because we're all born with an orientation to bad behavior and we carry out that bad behavior. All of us are sinners. None of us without Christ could save ourselves. We're all in the same sinful boat. In fact, someone put it this way. Evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. We're all beggars. We all need a savior. And when we know what the savior has done for us and we realize what he's done for us, then we're motivated out of love to obey his commands, even commands that we don't like. Look, I don't like some of the commands either. (laughs) I mean, but I'm not the general manager of the universe. I'm not the moral arbiter of the universe. I may think I know what's best, but I really don't. So, If you think you know what's best and you're going to go against Jesus, first of all, it it seems odd to me that somebody would claim to be a Christian and disagree with what Jesus said or his apostles said. Not only are you being disloyal to Jesus by denying his teaching on sexual ethics, you are not loving your friends, but you're hurting them because you're enabling them. You're encouraging them to go down a road they ought not go. Do you know what sin is? Sin is really anti-creation, if you think about it. It's like evil. Evil is anti-creation. Sin and evil. Same kind of thing, right? Sin, or let's, let's use evil. Evil doesn't exist on its own. It's a parasite in a good thing. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you've got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, what do you have? Nothing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of the car, you've got a better car. If you take all the car out of the rust, you've got nothing. Evil is like a wound in your arm. If you take all the wound out of your arm, you got a better arm. If you take all the arm out of the wound, you got nothing. A totally moth-eaten garment is a hanger. In other words, it doesn't exist on its own. Evil does not exist on its own. It degrades something that's good. It degrades creation. Sin does the same thing. Sin is a parasite, just like evil. It's a parasite that eats away at a good creation. By denying Christ's teaching, you are encouraging people to engage in activities that will ultimately eat away at themselves. It will eat away at their thinking and eat away at their relationship to God. And our, again, our goal here, our purpose in life here is to know God. We don't want to eat away at that relationship why Jesus said in John 17 3 this is eternal life that they meaning us he's praying for us future believers that they may know you God the Father and Jesus Christ whom you've sent Jesus is praying to God the Father the purpose of life is to know God and then of course to make him known now when we say no we just don't mean intellectually we mean personally relationally not just belief that not just believe that Jesus is the Savior but trusting in him That is what we're here to do. We're here to know God and to make him known and to spread that news to others, to love God and love others. Well, you can't do that when you're encouraging a parasite to eat eat away at the relationship that another person has with God or your own relationship with God. That's what sin does. It's a parasite. It eats away at a good creation. 
And if you continue to do that, ultimately, God may give you up to your own desires because a good God does not force himself on anyone. And Paul talks about this at length in Romans chapter 1. Just read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. In fact, he gets to the point where he says that people suppress the truth and unrighteousness to go their own way. That leads to futile thinking and then ultimately a depraved mind. And he talks about this in the context of sex, particularly homosexual sex. Look, I'm just a messenger. Just read it for yourself. Just read what goes on there. And I think the same could be said of just sexual immorality in general. That it fogs our minds. It clouds us. It leads to futile thinking. So we're not only doing evil things, we're encouraging other people to do evil things. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. It's a description of the culture. Not just today's culture, any culture. But certainly today's culture. That their minds are get to the point where they can't think clearly. And if they can't think clearly, they're going to continue to do evil things and encourage other people to do evil things. Matt Walsh has a blog, as you know. I think he's over at uh, the Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro now. But he wrote this a few years ago uh, regarding comparing biblical love with the self-centered erotica found in the culture. Here's what he writes. He's quoting, of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient, love is kind. It is not self-seeking. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And here's his commentary. The problem with the sex portrayed in this movie or in any trash uh, romance novel, he was talking about a particular movie at the time. I think it was Fifty Shades of Grey or something. Or any trashy romance novel you find at the airport or many other films and TV shows or in many actual relationships is that it's always self-seeking, never honest, never truthful, never trusting and never protecting. There is no hope in it, no kindness, no sacrifice. It's selfish and removed, which makes it stale, which is why people tire of it so quickly and become bored with it all, which is why they consume so much porn and bounce themselves between so many different one-night stands, unquote. Yeah. I mean... If you're in a relationship with someone right now, is the other person seeking to protect you? Really? Do you think that people who want to have sex with you but do not want to marry you really love you? Are they so concerned about you that they will protect you to the point of sacrificing and denying themselves? They want sex but no marriage commitment? Yet they say they love you? Let me, let me tell you something. They're lying. The person that really loves you is willing to wait until you're both ready to spend the rest of your lives together. In fact, there's no such thing as free love. Someone who loves you will bind him or herself to you forever. That's what true lovers do. They commit themselves to the good of one another for better or worse until death. Now, such a commitment requires a bunch of self-sacrifice here. It's not the freedom to dump the person whenever you think it would be convenient to do so. Now, I'm sorry to be blunt, but look, if you're having sex outside of marriage... You're just using someone for your own temporary satisfaction. Even if you've mutually agreed to do this, you're both admitting that the other person is not good enough. Or let me put it another way. Even if you've mutually agreed to do this, you're both admitting that the other person is good enough to use, but not to truly love. Ouch. Now that everyone hates me on this program. (laughs) Sorry, look. Look. If you think what I'm saying is false, you can email me. Hello at crossexamine.org. But I don't think it's false. 
and in your heart, you know it's not false. You know that if you love somebody, you'll protect them and you'll commit yourself to them forever because that's what lovers do. <sighs> yeah, no one ever no one wants to talk about this stuff, do we? Nope, we just want to sweep it all under the rug. Nope. We don't want anybody getting mad at us. Nope. Not gonna not gonna mention it. After all, love is love. What do you mean by love? Does that mean just following every desire you have? Because if it does, you can't really love. You, you're not going to protect other people. You're going to use other people to get what you want. No, love means self-sacrifice quite frequently. It means saying no to desires that you have, not yes to any desire you have. In fact, just speaking of heterose- people engaged in heterosexuality, forget homosexuality for a second. Heterosexuality. If you just follow every desire you have... You're not going to love anybody. You're just going to go from one particular desire to another particular desire. You're going to use one person and then use the next person. (sighs) Sorry, folks. Cheery. I know it's a cheery show, but look, you just got to speak the truth here. And uh, hopefully I am. Hopefully I'm lining up with what Jesus and the apostles said, because Jesus is the truth. He should be your commanding officer. If he's not, reevaluate what you're doing. I'm Frank Turk, back in two. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation? 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Yeah, some people are going to protest what I've said at this show. But, you know, despite your protest, if you want to protest, what Jesus and his apostles said is actually the most loving ethic of sexual behavior. And you don't even need the Bible to know it's the most loving. We only need to look at the terrible results of the past two generations of denying the sexual ethics of Jesus and the apostles. I mean, how many homes have been broken? How many kids have been left? How much crime has resulted from kids coming from broken homes because of sexual immorality of their parents. The number one thing a kid between 5 and 17 worries about is their parents are going to get a divorce. Number one. By the way, divorce is a much bigger problem than the LGBTQ issues. I mean, they're both issues don't get me wrong they're both not according to god's will but casual divorce divorce without a biblical reason everybody's hurt kids are scarred scarred for life can they function oh sure yeah yeah i mean yeah they can but you're just making it harder Look, I'm 57 years old. My parents are 83 and 81. If they got married, I mean, if they got divorced right now, I'd be scarred. And I'm 57. Think about kids. Yeah. All right. Enough of the cheer today, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Let me uh, go to a couple of your questions because, uh, well, I got a question from Rick today about marriage. 
He said, Dr. Turek, I need some advice on how to counsel some of my friends. Several of my friends have children with an unbelieving partner but aren't married. If that person would become a Christian or realize they've been living incorrectly, what would be the next step? Do I encourage them to get married and model a Christian life for the unbelieving spouse like Paul talks about? Or should they just leave the unbelieving partner? I know the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked, but in these situations, they basically already are yoked. In some cases, they've been together for years. Splitting up would have the same negative effects as divorce on the children. What advice would I give them? Well, I think, Rick, you've probably already hit the nail on the head in this case. You know, here's what we try and do. We scramble the eggs, and then we expect God to unscramble them. Now, there's, there's some places you go that there's no, there's no, there's no easy answer to get, to get back to wholeness. I remember I had a call once from a, a guy who, who said he knew of a Muslim who, to become a Christian, he already had four wives. What does he do now? I'm like, wow, never thought of that. I don't know. What does he do now? I guess somehow he's got kids with all four wives. What, what, what does he do? That the eggs have already been scrambled. How do we unscramble? We can't. We, we've got to do the best we can, I guess, at this point. I mean, I would encourage the person, probably like you probably would, Rick, here, to all right, marry the other person, even though they're not a Christian. You're already, in effect, married anyway. You've got kids together. And be the influence on the other person, as Paul talks about. I think he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, I want to say. Uh, that you can sanctify the other person who's not a believer, if you're a Christian in that relationship, and be there for the kids that you've already created. That's what I would say. Again, there's nothing in the Bible about this other than what I just said with regard to Paul saying, hey, you know, you can sanctify the unbelieving spouse. But as you said, Rick, they're already, in effect, married. They don't, they don't have the, uh, the official marriage document, and maybe they weren't married before God, but they're living together. They got kids. Make it official. Make it official. That's what I would do. Uh, I got a question from Michaela here. It says, greetings, Dr. Turek and the cross-examined team. I've been listening to you all for about four years now, and the content that you produce and publish has helped me tremendously in my personal walk with God and in communicating the truth to others. Well, thank you. My question for you is this. How can I build enthusiasm and awareness about apologetics amongst my church congregation? I feel there's a general lack of knowledge regarding apologetics amongst my church community, and I want it to change. I would appreciate any advice you can offer. Wow. Reminds me of the uh, question that I once asked at our seminary. What's the greatest problem in America today? Is it ignorance or apathy? And one student said, I don't know and I don't care. Yeah, it's really difficult to get people excited about certain things. Uh, Apathy, if I had the cure for apathy, not only would I be a billionaire, I I would also have the cure for everybody who's not a believer. Because I think, well, a lot of people aren't believers. Because I think a lot of times it is apathy. People don't really care. How do you get them to care? I've noticed this with apologetics, uh, Michalia, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, that uh, apologetics is is something that people don't really know about, they don't really care about, but once they hear it, if it's done well, they get excited. Wow, I never knew this. Wow, is there more of this? What can I learn? How can I learn more about this? Now, if you're trying to get this in your church community, um, first of all, I don't think going to the pastor and saying, Pastor, you need to do this is going to work. First of all, pastors are overworked in most churches. 
They have the second hardest job in American Christianity. The hardest job, of course, is pastor's wife. But the, the second hardest job is a pastor. And they've got so much to do. And they're not really supposed to do everything a- anyway. The, the, the smaller congregations think they are. But what a pastor and his team are supposed to do is equip the saints to do ministry. Ephesians 4. So that means you are supposed to get schooled on apologetics and offer to teach. Offer to be somebody who can be a resource for others who are looking for answers. Teach it in a Sunday school. Teach it on a Sunday on a Wednesday night. Teach it in a small group. We have resources here at crossexamine.org. Go to crossexamine.org, click on store, and you can teach the why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist uh, presentation. Or you can take our course that we're about to offer here and and do it with some people in the church. Say, hey, let's do this in our small group. Um, let's Let's get the DVDs in our small group, for example. We have workbooks that can go with it and take people through it and get get them to have an interest in it by by just saying, hey, this is going to be the next study we're going to do, for example. The people who learn about it, some of them are going to get on fire for it. Yeah, some people are never going to get excited about it. Okay, you can't do anything about that. You can't really push a rope. All you can do is provide it and hope it catches on with some people. Now, a lot of times, as you know, something will only become important when it becomes personal. So when, for example, uh, a child goes off to college and calls home and says, Mom, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. Now, suddenly those Christian parents are upset and apologetics has now become personal for them. They never thought about it before. They didn't even maybe even know about it before, but now they're looking for answers. Why? Because somebody personal to them, somebody important they love, personal, personally, needs apologetics, needs evidence. And so now they're interested. So it may be that you can ask the question of your congregation, how many people do you know who have gone off to college and are now have walked away from the church or walked away from the faith? They even do this in high school now. Maybe you can get the youth pastor involved. What you don't want to do is become a burden and say, you need to do this. You go and you be the person doing it and assisting with the pastor or the youth pastor or the small group leader, whoever it is. You can't just have a problem and dump the problem on somebody who's already overworked. All you can do is agree to help with the problem by being a resource for that person. So good question, uh, Michaela. If I'm again pronouncing your name right, I hope I am. Um, Let me go to another question from Claudia. uh, And she's a 19-year-old Christian law law student from Australia. She said, I've been getting into a lot of debates lately about objective morality with friends. I've been using your example of, was the statement, there are no humans on the earth true before there were humans on the earth? And a lot of my atheist friends have conceded to this point that there is objective morality after all. Actually, that's not an argument for objective morality, but for objective truth anyway. And then she goes on to say, uh, Claudia says, uh, however, a friend of mine says that the standard of morality doesn't come from God, but it comes from the notion that anything that deprives people of their life, shelter, food, or reproductive rights, i.e. rape, is wrong. How would you respond to this? Well, I would first ask, what do you mean by that? (laughs) What notion are you talking about? And, uh, how did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that's true? And this notion, is this notion objective? 
Suppose Hitler comes along and he has another notion that says that he gets to kill people who get in his way because he wants to build the super race and you're a undesirable in his view. You're somebody that's going to get in the way of resources that um, the super race needs. So we're going to kill you and take your stuff. Why is he wrong if there is no God? If there is no God, then everything's just a matter of opinion. It's just your opinion against somebody else's opinion. So... The standard of morality either comes from outside of human beings or it comes from human beings themselves. If it comes from human beings themselves, then it's not objective. It's just my opinion against your opinion. If it comes from outside of human beings, then that's what we mean by God's nature. You see, if goodness doesn't exist, there's no such thing as being good or bad because there's no way to define good or bad. And what we mean by goodness is God's nature. It's outside of us. It's before us. It's authoritative to us. It's beyond us. If not, nothing is ultimately right or wrong, good or bad. And this is how we judge the Nazis at Nuremberg. We said to the Nazis, they said, hey, we're just obeying the orders of our government. And we said, oh, there's a standard beyond your government. It's called international law. It's called the moral law. It's actually God's nature. And you have a moral duty to disobey an, uh, a, a, an immoral order from your government because there's a, there's a government beyond the government, and that's God. That's his nature. If there's no government beyond the government, then we can't say the Nazis were really wrong. So another thing this gentleman, Claudia, is confusing is the difference between ontology and epistemology. Ontology is that something exists. Epistemology is how you know that something exists. And he's dealing in epistemology. He's saying, well, I know it's wrong to murder people, for example. Okay, you can know it. But why is murder wrong if there is no God? Why is there a standard of goodness? What grounds that? God's nature grounds that. Without God, nothing is ultimately right or wrong. It's not just an argument from authority. It's an argument from the ontological nature of God's nature. Ontological nature of God's nature. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. God exists. If he exists, good exists. And if he doesn't exist, good doesn't exist. All right, friends. I'm Frank Turk. Great being with you. Check out our website, crossexamine.org. And don't forget to sign up for the new Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist course starting this week. God bless. See you next time. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.